0: Welcome to another edition of ASP and Answered. Today we are thrilled to have Dr. Jack Lessig with us who served as president of ASP from 2011 to 2012 and was ASP's 26th president. He is a licensed and clinical sports psychologist, a certified mental performance consultant, and is the director of the Ohio Center for Sports Psychology. Uh, at the time of this podcast, he serves on the Certification Council and is the chair of the Mentorship Committee and then also serves quite extensively on the recertification committee. You may also recognize Jack's name from his annual workshop that he provides future and current professionals in the field called the nine mental skills of success, uh, successful athletes. Jack, thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate you being here.
1: Thanks, Brandon. I appreciate the opportunity.
0: (laughs) So why don't we just get things rolling here um, and you could just give us maybe a 30-second kind of your elevator pitch um, in terms of your bio in ter- you know regarding where you are right now. And then we'll, we'll certainly get to how you got to where you are right now in, in just a little bit. So if you give us a quick kind of 30-second sure. summary of, of where are you
1: today. Okay, I'd be more than glad to. Uh, I am in full-time private practice as I have been for 30 years. Um, I started out with a mixed clinical and sport performance, and the last 10 or so years, it's strictly performance. Most of the work occurs in my office with individual athletes from a wide variety of sports who have chosen uh, to come and work on their mental skills. Um, I did work with the Cavs part-time for three years. That was an exception, but most of the work is right in the office, and I love what I'm doing. Mm.
0: That's, that's the best part. That's the best part that, right. you, that, that the passion and love is there for sure.
2: So Jack, in our podcast, what we hope to kind of better understand how key figures like yourself in the field got to where they are today. So we were hoping you could give us a bit of background on your pathway to where you are today. And in that, just kind of highlight any of those, you know, key or significant moments that may have formed your experience in sports psychology.
1: I'd be I'd be more than glad to, and I'm gonna turn the clock back a little bit. Um, I started college a long time ago at Penn State uh, to become an engineer. It was a terrible fit. At the end of my first year, I had a 1.4 <laughs> GPA. Uh, at 1.2, the university would have dismissed me and told me not to come back. Okay. The following year, I came back motivated, determined to do better. But by October, the leaves were turning, the mornings were beautiful, crisp blue skies, you could see your breath, and I had a pit in my stomach because I was going to my first engineering class. Well, on that day, uh, I took a fork in the road. Instead of turning right to engineering, I turned left and went to the counseling center and I said, I need help. And I had just a great, great counselor after a couple sessions. He said, I don't know why you are in engineering. You are clearly a people person. And he guided me in that direction, even set up appointments for me to interview some of the faculty members in psychology and sociology and uh, human sciences. And I fell in love with psychology, totally, totally fell in love with it. And that passion remains to this day. Then I realized, you know, if I wanted to do anything, I had to go to graduate school. So I worked my butt off and went from that 1.2 to 4.0s for the most part for those three years, and was fortunate enough uh, to get into Case Western, where I, I studied clinical, got my PhD um, there. So that was a very, very big, pivotal moment, you know, in my life, and it still is a very big influence. The second major influence uh, began when I was age 38, and at that time, I was doing strictly clinical work, and I realized, I, I, by the way, I was I was smoking cigarettes at that time, packing a half a day of Marlboros. Uh, I was overweight. I was drinking a little too much beer. I felt healthy, but I knew you couldn't get away with this forever. Up until then, my goal had been to quit smoking, and I failed time after time after time. That time at age 38, the goal was different. I reframed it, and I wanted to hit 40 as a healthy person. That was totally different. So one day in April, I put on a pair of jogging shoes. I was working in a psych hospital. I walked out the front door. I turned left. I left the Marlboros. I crunched the pack, threw them into the wastebasket. And I jogged for the first time. I jogged as fast as I possibly could. Little old ladies were walking faster than me and mocking me. (laughs) <laughs> Four minutes, I thought I'd have a heart attack. I was out of breath. My heart was racing like crazy. But the next day, I jogged for five minutes. Fast forward two months later, uh, I ran a five mile race and I jogged the entire thing, the entire race without walking. And I was very proud, even though I finished last. Two years later, I ran the first of what turned out to be 15 marathons, including Boston. Um, I was very dedicated. I trained at 60 miles a week uh, for the better part of 10 years. Uh, I was not elite by any standard, but I was a very dedicated athlete. And that's what really piqued my interest in the mental part of sport, Um, both the emotional part, the cognitive part, dealing with all the issues that have become familiar to me in more recent times, you know, in, in my work. So I had to deal with following a training program when you were tired and you didn't feel like doing it. Uh, I had to deal with um, successes and disappointments, um, some minor injuries, one or two bigger injuries and anxiety, particularly the night before marathons. Okay. So this really got me quite interested and we're, we're talking now, gosh, um, early 1980s. And uh, I decided, well, let's see what psychology has to say about this. And so this was really before Internet, before Google, all that sort of stuff. And I don't remember what my sources were, but I did did discover five or six books that were on sports psychology. The number one was Terry Orlick, uh, Pursuit of Excellence, edition one. And I still have edition five, I think, on my on my bookshelf. That really, really turned me on. I was so excited, first of all, in using the concepts uh, on myself, and then later on, beginning to work with some, some clients. Uh, the big, big, big moment um, occurred on October 20th, 1981, and that's the day when I did my first session with an athlete and started practicing sports psychology, okay? Okay. I had a phone call from a mom, which I still often get, and she had a 16-year-old son who was a very serious national level level figure skater who was so nervous before he would go out and and compete that he would often have to go to the bathroom uh, before he could go, okay? Um, So and throw up sometimes. So I worked with Mark and I felt fairly confident because I had been doing as a clinician a lot of work with fears and phobias Using some of the tools we use now, some relaxation uh, techniques, some self-talk, visualization, and so forth. So I felt that I could apply those those techniques to Mark, who was age 16 then. And uh, indeed, we got got good results. Um, Through Mark, I got to know, with his permission, of course, his coach. The coach began to send some referrals. And uh, I got to know the, the figure skating community and was getting a fair number of referrals from them. Uh, I still keep in touch with Mark. Um, He's 57 years old now, and uh, he's been a skating coach most of his adult life. And occasionally he gives me a call and says, uh, hey, I've got a young skater here who throws up before they go out to compete. Will you work with them? So we do lunch once in a while, and that's been a good experience. Okay. So uh, moving on a little bit, we're still in the early 1980s. I'm beginning to practice sports psychology, getting very excited about it. And in the mail, I got an invitation to come to a sports psychology conference sp- uh, sponsored by a U.S. Olympic committee in Long Beach, California, in September of 1983. And I was thrilled beyond belief. It was a two day conference, and I flew out there, and it was an all star cast. Okay. And I still have the mementos from that experience Dorothy Harris, uh, Reiner Martin. William Morgan, uh, Robert N- Nidifer, Bruce Ogilvie, uh, Richard Swan, Dennis Waitley, uh, Betty w- Wentz, uh, Dan Landers, and so forth. It, it was incredible. And I would mention parenthetically that I recorded all those sessions, and I probably have 90% of it on cassettes. And I want to do something to to preserve those and donate them. So Anybody's listening to the podcast uh, who wants to use them in a way that would become accessible to the profession, I'd be more than glad to do that. Part of what was so exciting at this conference was, first of all, it sort of reinforced that my thinking was along the right lines, based in basic principles of psychology and some clinical psych- uh, techniques. The other thing that really impressed me so much was the warmth and generosity of all of these speakers, there were about 60 of us who attended and there was a lot of informal contact and they were just so, so supportive. Parenthetically, um, not too long ago, I was looking through uh, the handouts from that conference and guess what, Ken Revisa early in his career was attending. We didn't know each other, we didn't meet meet each other but he was also one of the attendees and that was pretty cool. Oh. Now, a few weeks later, and this was a, a delightful experience back then. I didn't have um, an answer, I had an answering service, I didn't have a pager. So, my answering service says, Oh, there's a call from some guy who wants you to return the call, and what's his name and, and phone number? Uh, Bruce Ogilvy. And it was like, Oh my god, oh my god <laughs> <he's calling me. laughs> what in god's name is Bruce Ogilvy calling me for? So, I call back. <laughs> And Bruce, who also, those who have known him, was just so warm and generous and just just enthusiastic as well. So, Bruce, anyhow, here was the deal. Uh, The Cleveland Indians at that time wanted to hire a sports psychologist, and they called Bruce because he had worked with one of the other major league teams and the manager as well. And Bruce said, you know, I really don't want to do this. I'm too busy and I'm in California. You're in Cleveland. So I looked at the list of people who had come to the conference and your name popped up as being in Cleveland. Here's what I'd like to do. I'm going to introduce you to Pete Bavese, who was then the GM uh, by phone. I want you to go and meet him. And then the two of us will start working with the team And eventually, I will phase out, and you'll continue working with the team. Well, I was ecstatic. This was so early in my career, and to have God himself wanting to partner with me in this particular way was really exciting. So I met with Pete Bavese. We had a wonderful, wonderful session. I'm all ready to go. And two weeks later, there was a baseball strike, okay? There have been several. I can't remember this one. I think went well into the season. I think they resumed, but you know, it wasn't the same. And Pete said, we can't do anything new. We just want to get through the season. Call me next spring. We're going to get started again, and that sort of thing. Well, as fortune would have it, uh, Pete left that job and moved on took another job. The new GM wasn't particularly interested. So just kind of wondering, geez, <coughs> just wonder where this might have gone. You know, the the shoulda, coulda, it woulda, but anyhow. But I was honored to know Bruce, you know, and uh, he remembered me. And when he was still coming to ask, we would always get together, chat a little bit. Another example of the generosity of almost everybody I've met in the field of sports psychology. And those are my role models. And I try to be that person to the generations that have come up since then. Okay, so uh, I know you can cut this if I'm getting long winded. So you could. This is great. (laughs) But uh, the next next big step was uh, really. Uh, so far, ASP has not been started yet, okay? So there was no ASP, there's no Division 47. Uh, but eventually, ASP was founded, and I became very interested in ASP, of course. And in 1993, I attended my first ASP conference, and that was in Montreal, for those of you who may recall, may have been there as well. And I thought it was going to be a one and done. I thought I would just go to all these webinars, learn a lot, and then maybe do it again sometime in the future. Well, I got off the bus at the hotel, and I didn't know one person. Okay? And they were having the open reception. And I looked around, and I saw a name tag, and here it was, Michael Sachs. Now, Michael and I had corresponded with actually handwritten letters or typed letters back in 1893. So we knew of each other, but we had never met. Uh, Mike greeted me with all the warmth and enthusiasm and introduced me to a dozen people and really made me feel at home. And we've been friends ever since. And we always spend a little time together at, at the conferences. The other person that I met a day or two later was Bonnie Berger. Uh, and Bonnie and I have become lifelong friends as well. We always get together, you know, at, at ASP. So anyhow, I um, Since then, I attended every ASP uh, except one. I can't remember which one. I missed one of them for some reason or other. And obviously, that's been quite a bit of my uh, involvement in the organization. Uh, Before I served as president, I did serve two terms uh, as division head of, of public relations and outreach. And uh, it's a little hard sometimes for me, as I looked over your questions, to decide what was I doing during those prior terms and what did I do during the presidency? So I've kind of tried to partial that out um, a little bit. Uh, one of the things that was, had, was my main interest was the public relations. And um, in 2006, I was, uh, I was still head of, uh, of public relations and outreach. And we had no PR um, programs whatsoever, zero, zero, zero. And I wanted to plant that. And before the Turin Winter Games, I was able to ask the eBoard to appropriate a modest amount of money for a time limited public relations experience. And that's what we did. I was able to get a PR company in Cleveland uh, that spent a fair amount of time with me understanding sports psychology, and they did press releases. Uh, about the mental part of sport, and particularly around the time of the Turin Olympics. Now, my agenda was to get the e-board used to appropriating money for public relations, because this was modest. I think it was less than ten thousand. Uh, and indeed, over time, that that did happen. So, anyhow, uh, as as you probably know, I served two back to back terms in public relations. You know, and then I moved on, ran for, and was lucky to be elected as as president of ASP.
2: Whoa, whoa, whoa. Let's slow down a little bit. Sure. Like you're jumping ahead in our interview questions, man. I love the, uh, the excitement that's coming through you, but I do want to touch on a, a couple things that you said in that earlier part. So I think the first, I love the vulnerability about your early challenges. I think that's so good because I think especially early career individuals see someone who's, who's made it to the levels that you have made it. And we think it was smooth sailing. And I love that you were able to open up and really think through that piece. I also really love the referral that you get from past athletes. Like, how much more of a stamp of approval can you get that someone you worked with said, this helped me so much. I'm going to send people over. I think that's just so, so cool. And so um, I I would think so rewarding for you to see that. Um, I want to ask one follow-up question because you make it sound so simple, right? You're 38. You say, by the time I'm 40, I'm going to be healthy. And so you just start running marathons. (laughs) How does that... There's got to be something specific about that piece. So what led you to, I guess, just make that switch, especially since you said you had struggled with making that change before? What was the big thing? Was it just a change of identity or what was that big change? Good question.
1: I think it was reframing the goal. You know, the the earlier goal was to quit smoking because I didn't want to get cancer 40 years from then but there was no immediate reason but i really i don't know i guess this is around 1979 and and health and fitness was becoming more popular in our culture it was the beginning of the running boom and i didn't start out to to want to run races or marathons it was i just wanted to be fit But as I was running longer and getting more fit, then it's sort of like there was probably a 5K or a 10K, and they did a couple of those. And then I got to know – I'm a very social person, so I got to know members who also were running. Um, I joined a running club. And it was a lot of good camaraderie, and they probably set good role model examples of going further distances, you know. And that's that's with it. But it was gradual. It was that you know one, literally one step at a time. So I never started out with yeah. I'm going to run a marathon now. And I guess I would add, once I got into doing some significant miles, I always said that you know if you're a distance runner, uh, you're crazy if you haven't run a marathon. Okay. Then I also said if you run more than one marathon you're even more crazy. So that tells you a little about my category.
2: <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love it. I love it.
1: Ironically though the the the, the running which got my practice started eventually choked out the practice because I was spending so much time on training that it was taking it away from family, was taking it away from my work. And that's where I began to dial back down again and said, okay, I've done enough marathons. You know, I just want to be fit again. So I would race some of the shorter races.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's nice to think about how priorities change and the things that you can do change depending on the phase of life you're in or what your priorities are at that time. Well, and you were, you know, you're touching upon some of your earlier service
0: too in the organization, which, um, I, I vividly remember, I mean, I vividly remember, uh, us crossing paths when you were, you know, PR chair. And then even during your presidential term, and I do remember thinking, my goodness, he looks overwhelmed. <laughs> he's got, you know, he's, 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 he's serving, um, you know, here's this, you know, iconic figure in the in the field uh, you know, I think I was a, a graduate student at the time when our, our paths first crossed. Um, and then I did actually, even in, in I think it was 2008, I attended um, your, your workshop remember at, in, that. in yeah. 08. Mm-hmm. and remember um, that. But I remember, you know, things leading up to, you know, in terms of your service, uh, you know, as president, kind of what you were involved in. Um, and so if we can take you back to that point for just a, a moment here, when you think about the field, because because you, you even mentioned before, you started a lot of new initiatives, even like as, as PR chair, um, When you think about the field itself, and maybe not even just ASP per se, but the field of sports psychology um, prior to you running and being elected as president, um, how would you describe it? How would you describe the, the field um, and ASP, I suppose, as well? Um, prior to that decision, when you made the decision to run for president, what what do you recall things being like at that point?
1: Yeah, good good question. By the way, in terms of being busy and doing a thousand things, <laughs> Brandon, <laughs> I think I could throw that right back at you, my friend.
0: I know, I know, I know. I should I, you I,
1: ask I, for that. I'm but scared. see. Uh,
0: but so that, that goes back to the, the mentor. I guess you never really know who you're mentoring at right. the time. I, uh, but I, I was paying attention, I guess,
1: at uh, that I do remember you attending our workshop, and I was very grateful. that because I was already aware of you, and we had, we had crossed a little bit before. Okay, I guess I can answer that in terms of what, I, what I've experienced locally and then sort of on the bigger scene, okay? And like other aspects of sport, I think sports psychology has experienced a trickle-down. Okay. When a new tennis racket comes out, the first one who gets the tennis racket are the pros, and then it kind of comes down to the, you know, the Olympians and then to high school and so forth, and prices go down, you know, as well. So anything new is going to be adopted by the high level performers first because everything else is equal. So they're looking for that slight edge. Okay. So when I first started, uh, I did see a reasonable number of fairly high level athletes, um, Olympians and Olympian. people who are who are aspiring to olympics and that sort of thing i did not see many high school athletes the few that came came into the office with a with a big hat and dark glasses they didn't want to be seen in the shrink's office or anything like that okay now probably 50% of my practice is high school age athletes and now when a mom or dad calls because they're minors so the, the mom usually makes the contact you know, and after they tell me some information, I always ask the question: How does your daughter or son feel about working with a sports psychologist? And you know what they say? It was his idea or her idea. Uh, they came home from practice the other day and they said, "Mom, get me a sports psychologist." So, just the acceptance of it. I used to do a, a fair amount of of free speeches to football clubs and and baseball and all that just to say, this is what sports psychology does. It's not just about treating people who are underperforming. It's like strength and conditioning. Every athlete could use one. Now, I don't have to do that anymore. So on the local level, I've seen huge, huge changes. You know, I've also seen that instead of that stigma of being a psychologist, most of the young athletes do see me sort of as part of their team, and they, they don't care as much about confidentiality as I do you know, particularly the skaters, for example, you know, they have a dance coach, they have, uh, they take ballet lessons, they have strength and they have all this. I'm just another, another part of that team, which is pretty cool. Now on the larger scene and with, with ASP, um, when I first joined in 93, most of the organization were academic people. There were very, very few people doing private practice in a major way. Um, I think Kate Hayes and I were probably two back then. Back then, uh, not too many others, and that sort of thing. And what we've seen evolve now is just huge numbers of our members who are who are primarily doing sports psychology with with athletes. And when they look at the jobs that are that are being announced, it's phenomenal. It's totally phenomenal. And also so, conference, yeah.
0: So then, I, I, just a follow up to that too. Um, so with the PR chair piece, because I, I feel like I'm hearing some of that in terms of like what you experienced prior to being president, and the work that you were doing locally to really try to promote. Here's what this field is about, and it's so much more than maybe this fair, this narrow perception that people have mm-hmm. about what sports psychology might be. Um, that maybe the, the the PR that PR piece sounds like it was a, a really good fit. For you, I mean, Mm -hmm. there's so many different ways to serve early on. Um, And I know there could have been other positions that you could have, you know, put your you know, thrown your hat in the ring for. Mm -hmm. Um, But it sounds like that one was very deliberate, um, I'm guessing, based on what I'm hearing you say now in terms of what you did at the local level, too.
1: Very much so. Very much so. You know, and there was that stigma that only troubled athletes go see a sports psychologist. The model that I've tried to copy is strength and conditioning. Every serious athlete right. gets a workup. They know what their strengths and weaknesses are, and then they get a program. And that's kind of the model that I've tried to promulgate. Sure. Mm-hmm. Right? Oh, that's neat. Jack, I
2: want to go back a little bit even further. So I've never heard of this this conference in 1983, the USOC conference you're referring to. Was that something that was usual? Was that something that was like something that they brought the biggest people out for and it was something that was like once in every 10 years could you expand a little bit about that because i've never Um, it was the first ever
1: okay Okay. so they obviously wanted to make a big splash uh i'm not sure what was going on behind the scenes that they got all the big guns you know to come which was really fantastic uh it was sponsored by saint mary's hospital in long beach and after all these years, I was back in Long Beach early this year and went over and walked past that hospital and my God, it all started there, for me at least, you know. But as I found out, uh, the impetus was this is 83, Olympics was going to be 84, and I think that was in L.A., if mm-hmm. I recall correct. I'm pretty sure it was LA. So yeah. it was timely, and, and the L.A. community was up for it. But several of the speakers, I think Dennis Waitley mentioned uh, all of a sudden, USOC is really, really interested in mental performance and mental training because we're getting killed by the Soviet bloc countries in the Olympics every year. And the belief, which turned out not to be true, was they were doing mental training. Okay. Well, as we know, when the curtain fell, <laughs> it was drugs, it was just doing drugs all the time. <laughs> so the, the, the reason turned out not to be valid, but the results were fantastic. <laughs>
2: Huh. interesting yeah that's so fascinating to me huh yeah interesting so i love that you were kind of talking about your experiences with the pr and outreach could you touch on a little bit about what motivated you to run for president then so you've had these experiences and asked but what specifically motivated you to run for president
1: agreed in power like all other people running for <laughs> i knew it i knew that was what i had written down but i wanted to confirm no that's a good question um I guess it's kind of a continuation of the general motivation I had both before the presidency and after the presidency, and one of which is really having a lot of respect for our field and want to contribute to it, okay? Um, It also is sort of like being a private practitioner can be a lonely uh, livelihood. Uh, I've shared my office with other people, but none of them were doing this type of work. They, They were doing clinical work, nice people, and uh, we didn't have a lot in common to talk about. And sometimes I'm envious of those who are affiliated with university departments and you can have a cup of coffee and talk about your research or your practice or whatever. So part of it is the loneliness and wanting to affiliate, you know, and that's been really good because of the nine years that I did serve on the on the eboard and then the several years on certification, this has been very, very gratifying. I've worked with wonderful people and there's only... A few exceptions where people on the board may have had a very provincial interest to enhance. Almost everybody has really looked at what is good for the profession, what's good for the organization, and it's been great to be a member of those teams. So, uh, when I finished the two terms of uh, outreach, public relations, and outreach, you know, I had to decide, you know, do I step off? Do I step down now? And at that time I had the feeling, you know, I really know this organization, having been on the e-board for 6 years, I really know it. And I think I can do a darn good job. And that'll probably be at when I start turning down after I serve that term. And that, that's what turned out to be the case. Now, I don't know if I'd want to do that nowadays. The organization has become so big and so complicated. It was not as multifaceted back then as it has since become. Mm-hmm.
2: That's interesting. When you were running for as President and then when you were going through that process, what were your main goals for your time as president? And then what, what would you say were your main accomplishments?
1: Well, yeah, um, the, the main goal was really to continue uh, public relations and, you know, make it bigger and better. And that time we have a different orientation than public relations as I understand it now. Okay. The second goal was to really redo the certification process, the whole thing from the ground up. And I had nothing to do with that except appointing Jack Watson, who became president-elect, to chair an ad hoc interim committee to make recommendations on updating certification. And I gave him a six-month deadline, okay, to come back with a report. (laughs) Well, uh, you may realize, I think it was almost three years from that, and he went through his presidency and Worked on certification, and after his presidency, chaired the interim committee. You know, did a phenomenal job. So I really can't take any credit except appointing the right guy to do the job, and he sure sure did that. Um, I think public relations uh, took a very different uh, focus, appropriately. Uh, in my day, what we were really trying to do was to help members uh, get out the message in their communities. Okay, so we did have a long list. Of members who are qualified and could speak to the public. Uh, Betty Weibel was head of that through her public relations agency. Somebody would call Betty and would say, you know, um, there's a big national swim meet coming up next weekend, and there are a number of media outlets who want to interview somebody. And we would have a list, and uh, that person would do the interview. So we're really developing uh, the skills and the outreach of members so they, they would get known in their own communities as practi- practitioners of sports psych, okay? I think we got beyond that, you know, and I don't know in detail much what's been happening recently, but it does seem like the work is with major media outlets really getting very big publicity, and that sounds appropriate. That's where growth tends to go. So other than that, I don't think there were any major, major initiatives. I, th- I think, you know, supporting Jack and getting certification, you know, totally, totally revamped with good reason, you know, probably was a major thing that I nudged forward.
0: I mean, I think it's an interesting point that um, you're alluding to because with, you know, these – the. The way the presidential experience seems to function as kind of a three year commitment, you know, when you're elected, mm-hmm. your presidential year, and then past president, yep. um, it's got to be very difficult to, when you have somebody new in these positions, mm-hmm. when there are elections every year. Mm-hmm. Have some sense of consistency when you do have initiatives and, and, and you know, goals and, and things that you want to, you know, make sure that you're accomplishing when mm-hmm. the next person that, you know, after 20, when it gets to be 2012 yep. and, and now you're past president, you know, president number 27 comes in and maybe they have some different ideas and the momentum that you start, you know, maybe goes mm-hmm. in a different direction. Or uh, so I imagine like at that time being president um, in terms of accomplishments is Without a strategic plan in place, is probably quite different and difficult um, compared to maybe how we see some of these organizations and ASP, um, you know, functioning now, mm-hmm. where, where you have that, you know, some foundation or, or guide, you know, a, a guide to goals and, and and what are the you know objectives that we're trying mm-hmm. to accomplish here. You're a part of that. Um, when those didn't necessarily exist.
1: Right, it's very accurate. Um, and I would add, not only the president, but members on the on the e-board are rotating. Sure. you know I think, what, one-third of them are, re- are, are rotating off each year, and a new group comes in. So it is a little hard to have continuity. For that reason, and I guess that's another part of my experience, that I was president uh, when Kent's organization became our management company, you know um and that was the first time for him the first time for me really being involved and i realized that each year that organization would know more about us than we know about ourselves because they would be the voice of stability you know and right. i think that has happened and you know um it's a little bit A little bit odd, and I I don't think that's unusual. I think APA and other organizations that have executive directors are in the same position. Members get elected, but the executive director stays there and does have a lot of influence on the organization.
0: Right, right. So if we were to just for a moment here take a step back and give you a little bit of a break (laughs) from uh, the the, the presidential stuff, Uh, but, but still stay within the realm of sports psych if you'd like to, um, we one of the things we, we like to do at this point um, in, in our podcast is to give our guests an opportunity just to share a, a fun story um, from your time and your experience you know, in, in the field. So, so it's really your call. So anything goes, that um, there's a particular moment or story that you'd like to share that you know, when you reflect on the many wonderful memories, some of which you've been kind enough to share with us, you know, that it always seems to bring a smile to your face um you know what would that be and and as as eric has said before um there are no points so this is kind of like whose line is it anyway where we award points but the points don't actually matter so we'll give you bonus points though they don't count for anything (laughs) but if you can involve some other (laughs) some other ask members in your story then we'll give you bonus points that you can choose to use for for however you would
1: like i can't think of any one moment that was hilarious okay but there've been a lot of good (laughs) moments that have been most enjoyable and often unexpected okay um one of which happened about, oh, two or three months ago. Um, I got a, a text from a young woman who said, you know, you worked with me a long time ago, and uh, I've been meaning to thank you, and I haven't gotten around to it. But anyhow, you taught me a lot of things that I've been using in life ever since. She was a figure skater, as it turned out, you know. It was it was very, very sincere, very heartwarming. And then I looked up my records, and it had been 17 years since I had last worked with her. And then a similar occasion occurred, and this one has a touch of humor in it. And the week before ASP, uh, I developed some kind of swelling in my right eyelid, and uh, it wasn't bad, but I figured I don't want to travel and be at ASP with whatever's going on here. So I went to one of our walk-in clinics, okay? And I had a physician assistant, and she asked all the questions and that sort of thing. And then she got my medical records onto her screen, and my name pops up, and she says... Oh, my God. Well, I thought I got cancer of the eyelid or something like that. <laughs> and then she said, are you a psychologist? And I said, yes. It's just, oh, my God. I was one of your clients when I was 16 years old. You know? Oh, my I was a skater back then. You know, I would also I'd choose a minority person. So that made me feel even better, especially during those times, you know. And uh, she said, I always wanted to reach out. But look, you walked right in here today. You know, I said, golly, huh. you know, a day later or soon we wouldn't have met. And uh, she said, yeah, she said a lot of those things really helped me to get through physician assistant school, you know, many, many times. And we finished our work and had a very nice warm hug before I left. So uh, I don't get a lot of those, but. I do get several a year, and they really are very, very touching. A long time ago, when I decided to become a psychologist, my goal was always to empower people to manage their lives in effective ways and be healthy and be good people, not to bring harm to others. And I did that as a clinical psychologist, and I do it today as a sports psychologist. That is still the goal, not just good performance, but good performance can't be ignored either. So.
0: Absolutely. Well and, and so like with the podcast, since there's no video, yeah, just the, the audio, um you look great today. So I'm assuming whatever was wrong with your eye <laughs> Thank at you. that point in time, they were able to, to they were, she was able to take care of that after you had a chance to reconnect too. She did
1: her job well. Uh, she gave me <laughs> okay. some advice and she gave me some ointment by the time uh, perfect. Okay, good. I good. At, at the conference I was cured. <laughs>
0: So I will tell you, um and, and uh this this means you'll have to listen to all the episodes. Um now this is the second eye story that has come up with this particular question. The other eye story was told by two people, two different people. Um It wasn't you. Uh Um, So there's something there's something with past presidents and and, and eye difficulties that. um, Well, we we have iPhones,
1: if you you pardon the bad pun. (laughs) There's
0: a a theme going on here. So if I may,
1: just sure, I guess I want to talk a little bit. uh, And it's, it's 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 serious, but it's all humorous at the same time. And I did develop a very nice relationship with Bert Geigas, you know, serving uh, when he was president. We became friends. We stayed in touch for most of his life. And, you know, we talk about the Bert-isms. And I can remember one time, uh, Bert is very gentle and, and wonderful. Um, but he also, we've had arguments, you know, and they were the good arguments that you have on an eboard. And one time, he, he and I were going at it. I can't remember the topic. And Bert pauses, takes a deep breath, and he said, after fifty years of marriage, I've learned that the person who has the strongest emotions about a topic usually wins. You win, Jack. <laughs> <laughs> oh, um, the other good. Bert oh. expression was again another heated heated um, argument or whatever, but I, I was witnessing it. and and one of the other people, Bert, had said something a couple of times, and the person on the board said, uh, Bert you don't hear me and Bert's response was oh I hear you clearly I just disagree with you <laughs> <laughs> oh too he, good. he was really delightful and uh he came into sports psychology at a later age as well as you as you may know thank you well, for thank sharing. you for sharing yeah. uh, Jack. that Jack. it was great I oh. appreciate that mm-hmm.
2: So I want to kind of shift us back towards the idea, but I want to think kind of big picture. You mentioned you were kind of involved with sports psychology even before ASP was. And so we really want you to think kind of over all the time that you've had in the field, in what ways do you feel like the field has evolved? And then if you can kind of give that, you know, what are the good things? What are the bad things about that evolution? You know, what are your thoughts on how we have evolved and maybe um, just kind of a big picture idea of how it's been since you've been in the field?
1: Um, I guess the first thing that's probably most obvious is is the expansion of membership in ASP. You know, um, I think there were 400 or 500 in 93 when I went to that first conference, and now I think we're getting close to 2,000, if I recall correctly. So that is absolutely huge. We've also seen the shift, you know, from being primarily uh, an organization of, of academicians who I think becoming primarily practitioners. I don't have numbers, but it seems like as I talk to people, it certainly moved in that direction. Uh, I think for the most part, that is good. And I think we do good work. Um, we, we deserve a lot of the credit that we get. Some of the concerns that I, I do have is that part of the expansion now is going into areas other than sport performance, Uh, getting into business, working with other types of performers. And I think we are going to go there. But the question is, how central should that be to the organization rather than being central to the person, you know? Um, I mean, Kate Hayes and Charlie Brown, you know, wrote a great book about expanding what we've known into other areas. But they did it cautiously. They did it very cautiously. And I get a little concerned when people just make that assumption, particularly early career people, Oh, well, if I can do this with athletes, I can do it with brain surgeons or whatever it might be. I think we will go in that direction, but right now we don't have the thorough training and research to support that. So a little concerned about maybe moving a little too fast in that direction. The other concern uh, that I that I do have is that it's a little hard for me to put that in words, but a, a little concern that the newer people coming into the field will be very different, are very different from the old folks who I learned and trained from who were really very, very broad, wide, and had tremendous knowledge about psychology in general, how people learn, how behavior changes, how you measure behavior, all those kinds of theoretical things that can be translated into action. I'm a little concerned with the enthusiasm of working with athletes that, that we may be developing some technicians, okay? Um, they know self-talk. They know imagery. They know those kinds of things. But do they really, really know them in depth and when to use them and how to use them and not to use them? Uh, there's an apocryphal story about a baseball coach who was, te- who was working with a pitcher, and he taught the pitcher how to how to throw a fastball in a couple months. And the pitcher was young and very delighted and bragging about it. And then the coach said to him, now that you can throw a fastball, it's going to take you two or three years to learn when to throw it. Okay? And I think that's the level of knowledge that I hope our younger generations are moving toward, not just mechanically teaching those kinds of things, you know? Uh, another concern... That I have, but this is this is the world that we live in. It's not a concern specifically of ASP, but it affects ASP. Is that most AFS ASP members, you know, really are very ethical people. They 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 know the ethical code, they belong to it, they, they sign to uh, agree to it. If they get in trouble, they're gonna be disciplined. Okay. And that is one of our greatest, greatest strengths. As you know, if you go to the internet and you Google sports psych or performance psych, you're going to see thousands of people who have no credentials whatsoever. They're not licensed. They're not held to an ethical code. And they can do whatever they want. And that's wrong. I know our certification. That's why we need the the, the public relations with certifications so that eventually the consumer, if they don't have that seal of approval they're not going to hire that person. We're not there. We have a long way to go. And in all my years, I've not had one person, whoever, whether it was CCASP or a CMPC, not one person who said, are you certified, Jack? No one's ever asked me that question. I want them to. I want them to ask that question. So those are my concerns for the big field. And you know, sooner or later, one of these individuals who has no credentials whatsoever, except maybe they played a sport, and that's certainly not enough. They're going to get in big trouble. They're going to do something really bad, something really stupid. And um, the journalists are not going to differentiate them from us guys. I mean, that's the risk. Maybe they will. But uh, it's too easy to say sports psychologist so-and-so, you know, was sexually abusing young girls and boys and stuff like that. So, But that's what we've got asked. But I think we're moving forward. And uh, I don't go to bed at night worrying about these things.
0: Well, and you you kind of gave us a little bit of of insight into what our next kind of area of interest was in terms of you know in addition to how the field has evolved, where is it that we're going? And and so I think you've given us a really nice kind of uh, perspective or idea in terms of some of what you've observed, mm-hmm. um, particularly with like the field as a whole. I don't know if there's anything else you would add to that in terms of what you see kind of down the down the road. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, you're obviously still heavily involved. Mm-hmm. In the not just the field but the organization, mm-hmm. um, is there anything maybe that you would add in terms of where you see the organization itself going? Anything maybe that you would add to the profession itself um, that that you didn't
1: mention before? Well, I did mention it, but I think inevitably we are going <laughs> to get into these non-sport areas, other areas sure. of performance. I just hope we do it slowly, cautiously, and make it science based as we have in the past. So that's, I think that's going to be okay. Um, A minor concern, you know, and this is just my own pet thing, it's not really a major concern for the field or anything like that, is when I ask most of the students at ASP or the early professionals, what do you want to be doing in five or ten years from now? So often I get the answer, I want to be working with elite professional athletes or Olympians. Sure. And I ask them why, and they look at me blankly, and I don't get a good response. And I think they're neglecting, you know, a population that needs to be served, and that's the one I spend a lot of time with, and as the high school right. elite athletes. Because first of all, if you look at that pyramid of participants, right at the peak, you do have that population of professional elite um, Olympic athletes, but they're so small in number, and they're going to go to the big dogs who have already been established for years. Okay, then you get to that middle band. And that's where I think the juice is. And that is the developing high school, college athletes. And I have found that so rewarding, you know, because not only do I help them enjoy their sport more, but I also, I think, help them to be better people. And they do throw out a wide range of issues that goes far beyond of wanting to get a D1 scholarship and perform well. Mm -hmm. We work on that, but we do a lot of other things too. So My influence is much greater with these younger people, but not as much glory, but that's okay. Well, especially when you well, think... I
2: love, go, ahead, go ahead, Eric. I, well, I was going to say, I love that you say that you may not see the glory, but I would say like 17 years down the line, when you see someone in a clinic who says, you changed my life for the better, <laughs> that's that's pretty big. I mean, that may not make the front page of the of ESPN or USA Today, but I can't imagine feeling better about your impact than someone saying Thank you, you. altered the way I am today.
1: I really appreciate that. You know, maybe I wouldn't use the word glory, but I have a very deep satisfaction when that comes back to me.
0: (laughs) Well, just how many times have, uh, I imagine all of us had conversations with colleagues. It could be students. And the same, the the phrase that seems to come up frequently is, I wish I would have known when I was competing, like back then, like what I know now. And the idea that, there is this population of of young people, mm-hmm. um, you know, Jack, that that you spend a considerable amount of your time with, working, mm-hmm. um, you know, providing these these really important, um, you know, services.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: That you know, my, my hope, or I guess the hope might be that the the narrative changes that by the time these individuals get to college, or, or maybe they get to that 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 peak. That this isn't new stuff for them anymore. They have had the opportunity to to learn and to be able to integrate what it is that that you work with them on for so much longer in their their development and then their you know their 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 sport careers whatever that you know the life skills
1: can come into
0: outside of sport um, that that it's not so much I wish I would have known they are they do know yes. you know because they they're starting a little earlier that
1: sounds good yeah I I, I think I, there's another change which which comes to mind now, which I didn't get to during my rehearsal all day as I was working on that. (laughs) (laughs) That, That is, coaches today are much more educated and enlightened about using stuff. For example, 20, 30 years ago, if I was working with a gymnast and I talked about visualization, it was like, well, what's that? And I would teach them. Now, if I say visualization, they say, oh, yeah, our coach makes us do that before and after every practice. You know, this is becoming more and more common. Positive self talk Many of the younger coaches are teaching to, to go through that. So it's more challenging for us to find areas where we can genuinely be useful. Right. We're right, more right. challenged. Now, I did think of a, a funny story, if time permits. Okay.
2: We got time. It's not
1: hilarious, but it, it amuses me. And it's a story... <laughs> <laughs> of one of my most successful interventions, and I didn't know I was doing it at the time, and it consisted of three words. Okay, now that I've got you curious, uh, a number <laughs> of years ago, uh, my son, then a teenager, and I took up go kart racing. Um, this was very serious stuff. This is not an amusement park. We bought our own carts, we had a trailer. These carts would go 60 miles an hour down the straightaway, one inch off the ground. We had the helmets, the gloves, the full safety equipment and that sort of thing. OK, uh, we would race on Sundays. We had a road course not too far from here. And the, the drivers competed according to age and that sort of thing. OK, so I was with the adults getting beaten all the time but having a great time. <laughs> My son, is more aggressive, was doing fine. So anyhow, it was predominantly a male group back then. And there was young one young girl, she was probably about nine years old, and I watched her race with the age group, and she just wasn't very aggressive. You know, no matter where she started on the grid, she was always ending up last, okay? And I, I watched her, and I saw her developing a little bit. And one day, I saw her really, really being aggressive and, and advancing a few positions, Okay. Now, a week later, her dad came up to me and he said, you're a you're a damn good psychologist. What you did with Olivia. And I said, what did I do? And he recounted that when the race was over and she was sitting in her cart with the visor up, she hadn't gotten out yet. I was walking past her and I gave her a fist bump and I said, you're a tiger. (laughs) And he said, she's walking around the house all week. I'm a tiger. I'm a tiger. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love yeah, it. Yeah. <laughs> oh but the, the 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 other side of that which which makes me sad is how often does an adult say something to a young person that is unkind and that's remembered and repeated just as many times as your tiger yeah absolutely absolutely
0: yep. so you've kind of touched on this already yes so, But I'm excited to hear what this might be specifically. Um, what advice do you have for students like me or new professionals entering into the field?
1: Good question. Good question, as all of your questions have been. I guess I would say to, 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 to really go with your passion, you know? And that is what has guided me my whole life. I've never been out to make a lot of money. I want to be comfortable, which I've been for most of my life, but I've never taken a job or anything, you know, to make money. It's always been follow my passion. That would be it. Also to be patient, you know, just as an athlete develops over a long period of time, a professional develops over a long period of time as well. And to hang out with those people who you look up to, who are successful, who you want to be like you know, have contact with them. Uh, and to consider who you really want to work with, you know, 10 years from now, you know, think about that. Is it just the elite athletes or is there a wider range? And that also, by the way, is part of success. Uh, part of my success has been my geography. Um, within 20 mile radius of my, of my office, there are 60 high schools that have athletic programs. If I were in North Dakota, I probably would not be able to have a full-time livelihood as a sports psychologist. So of course with zoom now it's beginning to change that as well, but yeah. Thank
2: Great. You. Thanks Jack. What do you hope that your impact on the field will be?
1: I don't think about that very much. <laughs> I do think, you know, what's, what's the immediate issue and how can I contribute to making that issue. I've been very gratified at how on certification on our mentorship committee, we have raised the standards. I feel so good about that. And that's not something that I came on the board saying I'm hell bent to do this, but as, as I became aware of the landscape, it seemed like that needed to be done. Uh, I do hope that some of the people that I've touched, you know, will be inspired and uh, will see some qualities about me that uh, they wanna emulate that would make me feel good.
0: We uh, we've asked you a lot of questions, Jack, and you've been so generous with your time and and your wisdom and your experiences. Is there anything that we haven't asked you, um, either about the field or ASP or something that you want to make sure that that what I I hope hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of our viewers <laughs> of viewers listeners, um, you know that they that it, it, something that you would want them to to walk away from, from this episode with that maybe we just didn't do our jobs very well and, and and inquire about.
1: Well, I think you've done a terrific job. Okay. Um, I can't think of anything that you haven't touched on, you know, so I probably wake up tomorrow morning with a few things. Oh man, I wish I would have asked that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, well, we we appreciate it. We, yeah. I appreciate you guys, and you've you've asked the questions that I enjoyed talking and sharing my thoughts with you on.
0: Well, we can't thank you enough for taking the time, Jack, to to do exactly what what oh. you've done um, in terms of of sharing your your experience and and your wisdom, but then also for your service. Oh, thank you. Um, you know, I think we we know um, that it's hard to find people that are able and willing to serve, and you've dedicated a significant part of your career um, to to the field to ASP, and um, uh, it, it certainly does not go unnoticed. And so, thank you for your time today, and thank you for all that you have done and continue to do, because we we don't rotate off, you know, the council until December thirty first. So right. we still got a little bit of work. We have a little bit more. You work can put him in the work. Yeah, we've so, got but, a lot of work um,
2: to do before <laughs> the end of the
1: year. I also would like was, to conclude in, in thanking each of you. For your time, you know, and your creativity in putting this project together, and I can hardly think of anything that's more worthwhile. And I've said a number of times, the sad thing is ASP is losing its history. Um, A lot of the people who witnessed the early history are passing on. And the fact that you're doing this with presidents, I think, is fantastic. Uh, I would hope maybe you or someone else will do something with the early members, the, the the founding members of the organization, because most of them are still alive and around too. So, we do need to leave a history behind us, and we can learn from the early. history. So, thanks for what you're we, doing. We, we appreciate that. Thank you. Uh, yeah. Well, thank
2: you jack for your vulnerability your just willingness to be real on on your pathway and sharing your own personal history so we've asked they've answered and we'll see you all next oh, thank
1: time. you i look forward to watching the series when it when it comes <laughs> up so have a nice weekend guys <laughs> thank you jack thank you so much jack bye now